Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. There's a Chinese proverb that says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. This is Seeds Talking Purpose, and I'm Stephen Moe. In the podcast today, we're going to be speaking with Ben Atkinson, who founded Fill Their Lunchbox, which is a social enterprise here in Christchurch, New Zealand. He's definitely someone who's out there planting a tree. Here's an excerpt of my interview with Ben. Everybody has the will in them to do good in the community, whether it's being a leader or being a follower, both are equally as valid. You need people to, to lead and to be innovative, but you also need people to get behind them. So I would support you to, to find what you care about and what really tugs on your heartstrings, whether it's child poverty or whether it's eradicating the use of plastic bottles. There's so many things that can engage you in a social level and just to find what it is that upsets you and find a way to, to support that. If you're a follower, find the organizations that are out there volunteer for them, donate to them, buy their goods. And if there isn't, then innovate, be a leader, be a trailblazer, Mm. make something up and just throw yourself at it and wrap it. In the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Jonathan Lee, who travels the world taking photos of beautiful places and inspiring people. And we'll find out a lot about his life and how he approaches photography as art. It's a really fascinating conversation, and it certainly opened up in my mind new ways of thinking about anything that involves some creativity. Now, just before we get into the interview with Ben, I should say that he's incredibly honest in this interview, and we go pretty deep pretty quickly, including talking about the death of one of his friends in the earthquakes in Christchurch and the resulting depression that Ben faced. So if there's any issues that this surfaces for you, please seek out someone that you can talk with about that. Now let's start the interview with Ben. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Ben Atkinson, the founder of Fill Their Lunchbox today. Thanks for having me. Um, Ben, on this podcast, we talk a lot about purpose, and we're going to definitely get into that with your story. Um, But it's also really interesting for listeners to understand a bit about your background. And the the format of a podcast means we can go into a bit more detail than than just a a short 30-second summary. So I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about where you're from. Cool. I grew up um, in Nelson, so top of the South Island, a small town, maybe 50,000 population. That's very different to Christchurch in the sense of um, schools up there. There's only three or four high schools, and you don't really have much choice. It's just where you live, whether you're in the town or out in Richmond or Stoke, you go to that uh, high school there. Um, So I I went to high school right through to all seventh form. Um, I was a a grade A student for the most part. Um, I took a a wide range of subjects um, from Japanese to a lot of sciences, mathematics. And then um, I think seventh form was a bit of a crazy year for me. Uh, I went from being being a smart kid and doing well to just getting a 3C pass. So for local listeners who are um, aware of the bursary and sixth form certificate and everything, uh, you needed three C's to get university entrance. Uh, I got three C's just by like a margin of a couple of percent. Uh, I had a pretty pretty epic uh, fallout in my home home life that year. So 
uh, it definitely derailed everything. Mm. Uh, but I was pretty keen to to still pass and, and make the move down to Christchurch, where I could kind of focus on having a bit of a creative life, which I felt Nelson didn't really foster. Sure. And just to give us a little picture of, um, I guess, your childhood in terms of what were the things that you enjoyed? Were you, uh, did you like getting into the outdoors or um, what was it, you know, was it music or was it other things? I was always a huge fan of music. Um, mm. I started playing guitar when I was 15 mm. and uh, that kind of let me experience my creative side a lot more. Mm. In terms of things that I, I love to do, we, we used to every weekend I'd go down to the rock pools in Nelson and with my dad and my little sister and once the tide had gone out we'd just go look at all the pools and see all the cool little um sea sea life that was kind of trapped there Mm. until the tide had come back in so lots of starfish and little fish and everything which is it seems so um inconsequential um at the time but when you look back that's like definitely one of my fondest memories Mm. Mm. that's great and in terms of the subjects you were studying in high school was there any that you particularly enjoyed over others or yeah, I was really into uh, biology. I wanted to become a forensic paleoanthropologist. Oh, you need to explain what that is, because so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it stemmed from my, my love of dinosaurs as a young child. Right. And then so uh, forensic paleoanthropology is uh, the study of uh, hominid evolution, um, but not so much going out there in the field and finding fossils so much, but um, doing lab tests and everything on them. So um, trying to work out from where in the hominid chain, pre, pre-human chain they came from and um, how old they are and then just trying to, you know, fill in those gaps. But I guess for every gap you fill, then there's another two gaps. So right. just helping to uh, thoroughly understand um, human history a little better. Yeah. Well, it's a great title. I would, I would love to have a title That's like a that. So, um, so you finished high school and you've got the, uh, just scraped in in terms of the grades you needed to get into university or uh, tertiary education. Um, what happened next? Uh, much to my career advisor's um, dismay, I decided to go to jazz school. Right. Um, they always thought I was going to be some um, super successful um, intellectual person. And then I decided I was going to... Um, train my creative brain and go to jazz school. I took the commercial music course. It changed its title from commercial to pop to rock, all in the space of time that I was there. Guitar was my major, and it was it was pretty rad. I got to meet quite a few interesting people, and I guess those were the formative years for me establishing a life in Christchurch, getting to meet the people that would become my friends, and that definitely changed my life course Mm. greatly yeah mm. and did you know many people here in Christchurch when you first arrived or were you nobody kind of, nobody okay yeah so um so you, you've enrolled in jazz school here and how long did that course go for I spent about two and a half years at jazz school mm-hmm. uh, I never finished it I I ended up leaving um to chase other dreams and I felt that it wasn't really benefiting me as a musician I played um I played death metal in my personal time. So going to school and learning how to play um, Elton John and U2 wasn't really that great of a transferable skill for me to use in my personal life. So I felt it not necessary to kind of finish it out. Mm. And were you, you were playing in bands then as well or? Yeah. 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 Was that, were those bands that you joined or did you form them or how did those come about? I pretty much formed every band I played in. Mm. Um, I definitely chipped in on a couple here or there that were pre-existing, 
but for the most part it was kind of, they were kind of my my babies in the sense of creating an idea i like playing to a theme mm. um, so one of them was based on ancient egyptian history where you could retell tales and kind of write music to fit that uh, if you have a theme it's so much easier to to create and um, develop ideas and everything rather than just going oh yeah well we kind of make music about you know life or whatever and mm. then trying to like personalize it and stuff it just mm. kind of gave us a different avenue to follow right and and so that's in if you were talking about a genre that was metal yeah definitely but you're taking themes and things from egyptian history and adapting them yes yeah, so it's no quite because yeah. i think people listening and me included maybe would say that's quite a unique combination yeah, well, no one knows what Egyptian music sounds like. There's right. no possible recordings. I think they found a vase once where it had in the grooves, they they found they could play the grooves and get a little bit of audio out of it. So as they were creating the, the pottery, uh, if there were live bands nearby or musicians playing, uh, recorded little bits and bobs of that. Mm -hmm. But no one really knows. I mean, for us, we just kind of adopted a double Hungarian major scale or alternatively known as a Byzantine scale. And because it sounds kind of Middle Eastern and we adopted that and kind of made it metal. But yeah, I think just pairing things that don't typically go together mm. is, is a great way to advance ideas. Mm. Well, that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting combination. I wouldn't have picked that. Mm. <laughs> and did that, uh, did that involvement in the music scene, that, that's what you were doing mainly in Christchurch at that time? Or? Yeah, I think I had one band that was very full time. Mm. And, and that was that. Uh, we toured a lot uh, around New Zealand. We recorded a couple EPs. Um, but yeah, after after the earthquakes, um, one of my best friends and our bass player passed away um, out, outside uh, the tattoo studio on Colombo Street. So we kind of uh, called it quits there because mm. we were all best friends and stuff and it didn't seem right to replace him. Mm. So although it had been pretty full time for a long time, uh, at that point, it was kind of the natural time to stop that. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. And just that creative outlet in terms of music, is that something that you've kept up over the years or was that a, a period of your life? I think I used the whole creative thing um, to branch out, particularly into food. I play a little bit of guitar now, not a lot. I do this thing where I try to learn a new skill every year in my spare time. So last year I learned how to play the drums. So I just bought a cheap electronic drum kit and that would be my kind of stress relief at home and creative outlet, mm. which has been heaps of fun. Mm. Uh, this year I'm learning Tadeo Māori. Mm. So I just started last week. So oh, nice. That should be pretty and, cool. And how did you come about with that initiative of learning something new each year? Was that you heard of someone else doing it or you just thought, I'm going to try this? Um, I just wanted to keep my brain active and I thought the best thing to do would be to try different things. I like to throw myself in the deep end. I think it's the best way to learn. And um, I, I hadn't seen it elsewhere, but just knowing that if I gave myself a year, it's kind of time to give it a shot, work out whether you like it or not. It's only a year. If you don't want to ever do it again, you can mm. just lock it away. But I liked the idea of as I get older, I'm learning new things and having a lot of varied skills. Mm. That's a great attitude. How long have you been doing that for? Uh, it's to be my third year. Third year. Yeah. And how do you decide what you're going to be studying? Uh, usually when I start a new thing, I start thinking about the next one and I'll have like three or four things that I'm contemplating. Right. And then 
I'll just kind of nail it down by the end of the year and then go, okay, this is what I'm going to do next. Yeah. So I think I might try painting next, oh. mainly because I'm really, really bad at it. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, you know, give it a go. So that's part of the criteria, something that you could actually improve in. Yeah, so I'd never played drums before. Right. I was lucky enough that I'd played so much music that when I sat on a drum kit, it was supernatural. Mm, mm. Um, learning Tadeo, um, I don't think it'll be too difficult to, for me. It's quite a phonetic sounding um, alphabet, and it's very similar to Japanese, which I'd studied previously. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, there's probably similarities there with the A, E, E, O, U. It's the yeah. same pronunciation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. So the, the music side, I guess that's the creative side of your brain getting used. Um, you, you talked about high school, the fact that your guidance counselors probably thought you were going to go into more of an academic side. Um, how does that take expression in your life? I think I haven't really utilized it a lot, to be honest. Um, if anything, I would probably be arguing over the internet. I did go to university for a bit and I studied a lot of philosophy mm. um, alongside other things, political studies, religious studies, um, anthropology, stuff like that. I think now, if anything, I use it towards uh, coaching people. Mm -hmm. So I work with a lot of young people between 16 and 24 mm -hmm. about how to find their purpose and their passion and mm. um, what it's like being a social entrepreneur and giving them those skills. So although I've only been in social entrepreneurship for 18 months, I've learnt a wealth of things mm. and being able to digest that information and then find a tangible way to pass that on would mm. probably be how I use mm. That's that great. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so vital, I think, for the next generation to come up to, to see examples of people who are doing things a little bit differently mm. as well. So just before we talk about that, because I want to unpack that a bit more and, and understand what you pass on to these next people coming up, but can you just tell us a little bit in terms of your own journey um, and how, well, wh what happened next in terms of the band had finished, the earthquakes had happened, um, what was going on for you in terms of work or life and things? I think it was, although I didn't really acknowledge it, um, kind of the post-traumatic stress thing. So when Maddie, my friend, passed away in the earthquake, um, you know, of course I grieved, but I don't think I really understood it or or took on board the the impact it kind of had on me i i suffered a lot of guilt for a while afterwards where it was like my best friend passed away at the age of 25 mm. that should have made me reevaluate my life a little more and think who am i what am i here to do where is my focus going to go instead i just kind of trucked along mm. and i didn't didn't achieve anything i was working as a as a chef in cafes and i was not really playing music anymore at that point so although i never sat there and went i'm lost who am i it was kind of like an underlying feeling mm. um, and is that something we're looking back it's more obvious to you but at the in the moment you didn't have a you know you didn't know entirely i had no yeah. idea yeah i just thought well this is what i'm doing and just every day was just another day mm. There was no real goal. There was no passion. Yeah. Well, if why don't you describe what happened next, or or what? Because I I get the sense from you, and I've seen you speak before, and you know you're out there in the community, you're talking with people. So something clearly changed um, from the person that you're describing, sort of post earthquake. Um, what were some of the things that have led to your becoming who you are today? Mm. I think there's maybe three three key things that if I look back on 
have definitely shaped how I've turned out. Um, the first I, I briefly alluded to at the start was um, in my seventh form year at high school. Um, I got kicked out of home, uh, even though I was a good kid and never really mm. stepped out of line. Uh, my parents decided they wanted to move to Christchurch. Um, however, being in my seventh form year, I didn't want to, to leave Nelson. Uh, the thought of having to try and transfer credits over, mm. um, especially when it was pre-NCA and there weren't really credits, um, seemed really difficult. And I didn't want to have to go and make new friends and, and do all mm. this kind of stuff. So I got home from school one day and my mum said to me, hey, look, we need to chat. Uh, we want to move to Christchurch. And I was like, hey, that's awesome. Um, but I'm going to stay here because I need to be here to to get the grades to make sure I can go to university or jazz school or wherever right. I want to go. Yeah. Um, she started yelling at me and and I I like to think I politely said it, but um, I asked her to F up mm. and I walked into my bedroom mm. and she came in and said, what did you just say to me? And I calmly repeated mm. what I said and then she kicked me out of home. Right. I, for anyone that knows Nelson, uh, there's some Yazu Gardens, which is the Japanese sister city gardens out on the way to Atafai. And I basically took all my textbooks and everything and I made a bed out of my textbooks on the floor of the public toilet in Miyazu Gardens. And I slept there um, for a few weeks, which was terrifying, wow. cold and uncomfortable. Um, I still went to school and tried to get my good grades. I still worked at the supermarket I worked at uh, for $4.90 an hour. Um, <laughs> I worked all day Saturday, Sunday, and then three nights a week just to try and um, make ends meet because I wasn't eligible for any um, government assistance. And so after that, I ended up living with a woman because um, I taught guitar at the primary school mm. as a mentor. And they put an ad in their newspaper for me, and a woman took me in, and I paid $60 a week rent. Um, and that was okay, although she treated me kind of like a slave because I wasn't paying much and expected me to do mm. all the housework and everything. And then one day she was drunk and tried to sexually assault me. Mm. Um, so I pretty swiftly got myself out of that situation. Um, I was taken on by a, a family of a girl that I worked with and they were absolutely amazing. They bought a caravan for me personally to go and live in. Um, and I paid the $60 a week, which is all I could afford and they looked after me like one of their own. And now, 15 years later, um, we're still really close. Um, mm. I called them my foster family, although I didn't live with them long. They definitely showed me what it's like to take someone who's in a bad situation and, and kind of unlock their potential and go, mm. look, all this bad stuff's happened. You don't have to follow a bad path. You can be a good person. Mm. And whether they know it or not, it was just done by just being themselves and being good people. Mm. So I think that was kind of the first major thing that definitely in, in hindsight shaped me as a person. Mm. So what age was this? You were 17, 17 or something? Yeah. Wow. Gosh. And did people at school know that this was going on or were people aware of it or? Yeah. So, uh, I dealt a lot with the counselor and in the school there it was a half boarding school half day school mm. um, so the school were really great and letting me go and eat with the boarders in their uh, cafeteria at no cost which was great the boarders complained about the food but I loved it because I was eating right um, and so they were they were aware of that and they helped me get the newsletter and the vic victory primary mm. um, thing and then so they were trying to help me find a place and everything yeah 
Wow, what an experience, though. To, <laughs> I can understand what you were saying in terms of grades, and you know, that's a huge amount of um, things that a 17-year-old shouldn't have to deal with. Yeah, it definitely bottomed out my grades. Yeah. I went from like a 90% student to like a 45% student. Yeah. Um, but I think there was also, you know, because of everything I was going through, there was a great reliance on drugs and alcohol mm. and partying and just kind of pushing the feelings to the side. Yeah. So it's not so much that the bad stuff was happening, that my grades were bad, but how I dealt with the bad stuff happening, right. which was making my grades go down. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned three things. So that was the first one. <laughs> Was there some other ones that... Yeah, so I guess the second one would have been Maddie passing. Mm. So just talking about that before where mm. I just didn't... I didn't register correctly, you know, what was going on uh, with my feelings and obviously the guilt that I, that I had with that. Um, I've been really lucky to connect with his family and we're all really close now, so that's, mm. that's really nice. Mm. And uh, the third thing would have been all of the built-up stuff... Um, so a few years ago, um, I was working at Joe's Garage in Sumner, and and I think it was a lot of the built-up stress from the earthquakes mm. and that loss of purpose and passion where I wasn't playing music anymore. I was just kind of working a job, and I'm the kind of guy that um, throws himself into mm. what he's doing. So if I'm working a job, I just don't do my 40 hours. I'll be there doing 60 hours. Um, I did the Gallup Strength Finder and wasn't surprised to find Achiever in number six. Right. So I'm, I'm the guy that just works his ass to the bone. Um, so I was just kind of working to, to deal with life, I guess. And I found myself with no real direction. It was like, okay, well, what if I died tomorrow like Maddie? And, and then what am I remembered for? Mm. Like all I've done is party and play music mm. and that's not something I'm proud of in a, in a way like I'm proud of the music we created but it's not much of a thing to remember me by mm. I guess it's the legacy isn't it what, yeah. what's the legacy and it's a bit narcissistic yeah. like I'll admit that because it shouldn't be about I want people to remember me for this right but I want to be proud of who I am mm. um, so I think being very directionless and not having that purpose I um, found myself um, trying to take my own life. Um, there's a cliff face by the beaches out here, and I, I drove up after work one day, and I sat on the edge. Um, it was probably like a 100-meter drop, and I, I couldn't really bring myself to jump, um, so I just kind of used my heels to kick away at the, the cliff face below me and just watching all the, the rocks and stuff like tumble to the, the jagged rocks below. And um, I was there for a while and was eventually... Uh, collected by the police, mm. um, which was a pretty <laughs> pretty crazy scenario. I yeah. never imagined myself um, having my car surround like blocked in by police cars right. uh, in the car park, and and also um, just being you know chucked into the back of a cop car, and then you know going down to psych emergency, and and everything there, and the the weeks that followed that, um, and that kind of. Everything changed for me at that point. Right. Um, that was the crystallizing event, I guess, that, that yeah that you would point to now. I can't even, like, signify the moment after that mm. where I had that shift in mindset mm. or who it was that helped got me there. Mm. And, and I assume it'll be like all these other things where in 10 years I'll look back and go, this was the moment 
um, but it definitely made me think, you know, like there is so much I can do and I am capable of if I just actually put myself to it. Mm. Um, so within months I had formulated this whole new thing and quit my job and just kind of threw myself into a life of purpose. Right. Yeah. Wow. So it's, thank you for sharing in, in so much detail. And, and, you know, I think, I think the listeners will really appreciate your honesty because knowing that background helps to explain what you're now doing. Um, so uh, do you want to just talk us through in terms of what that plan was and, and what it's become since that time? Yeah, sure. So in February 2015, I saw on the news, I think it was a, a rehash of a John Campbell piece where uh, kids in New Zealand were going to school without um, breakfast and lunch. And I think the child poverty measures at the time were 29% of Kiwi kids live in, in poverty, mm. um, which is, I think, uh, 297,000 kids, so close to 300,000. Mm. And being a chef at the time was like, well, you know, I have the skill set to do something about that. Sure, it, it might not be an end-all solution, but I can just go and make lunches and give them to the kids who don't get lunches. So I approached the owner of the cafe that I worked at, um, Anton, he's one of my good friends, and I just kind of threw this idea at him. Like, hey, the kitchen's closed on a Monday night. Do you mind if we come in and make some lunches for some school kids? And he's a really great guy and was 100% behind it. So we got together every Monday night uh, with some of my best friends and the crew at Joe's and Anton helped pay for all the food and we made around 100 odd lunches every Monday for Tuesday delivery to three schools just mm. on the east side. Yep. So this is where we, where we started and we'd done that for a year before we actually thought, okay, well, there's an, a bigger issue here, like three schools one day a week isn't really achieving a lot of impact. Mm. So that's pretty much where I threw my job in mm. and took it full time. And so what came about in terms of a name of a, a organization that you were starting? Well, we, um, we didn't have a name prior to this point because we had no intention of it ever becoming anything else. Mm. Um, I, I kind of, I sat there and I remember my, my like second in charge chef at Joe's at the time was away on holiday. So I was working like 70, 80 hours a week mm. and trying to establish this uh, new thing mm. um, in that transition period. And I remember sitting there and like coming up with name after name and they were all terrible. <laughs> um, I think some really cruddy ones like we care lunches right. and, and stuff like that. And I like mocked up a whole bunch of logos and and everything and then in the end just fill their lunchbox kind of mm. seemed very obvious the, the concept like mm. you get a lunchbox and you fill their one um, a lot of people told me that uh, it's too complicated for for a brand name and everything um, but I'm big on the story selling mm. rather than all those typical business strategies of having the best logo and having the best name and, and doing everything the way that everyone's always done it mm. and I'm huge into I'm not saying we're pioneers or anything, but just going out and just doing it how you think it should be done and not necessarily following the rules. Mm, yeah. So just explain a little bit about the business model and how that works. It's a buy one, gift two model. So simply we sell lunches to the public. Uh, they can buy them on our website. And for every lunch we sell, we then donate two lunches to Kiwi Kids in Need. So we've been 
operating that way. And we've now donated uh, 35,900 plus launches. Mm. And it, um, and that's to 12 schools locally. Mm. And in terms of the schools, how have you, um, how have you gone out and found the schools that you're getting the lunches to? I used a, a decile list, like a schooling list from the government. And I went through and found all the low decile schools so that's four and below in Christchurch. I found ones that would kind of fit a good uh, delivery pattern and I approached them. And then some of the schools have approached us. They've heard about the program and gone, okay, well, can we be a part of that? Mm-hmm. And we basically take on schools when we can. So as we grow um, our business model, we can then grow our impact model and we can include more schools and more days and everything like that. Mm. And what have been some of the highlights for you as you've done this? And then also the flip side of that, what have been some of the low points or the challenges? I think the high point is always assessing our impact. It seems so so obvious that on the top of the iceberg, right, of, let's say we've got this impact iceberg, the top you have all the lunches we've donated, over 35,000. Um, once you scrape away the top of all the lunches we've donated, it's things like measuring... Uh, lowering the truancy rate, increasing focus and grades and behavior in class, uh, lowering the stress of the family and school environment, uh, lowering the uh, bad effects of the greater community, and just about seeing all the wonderful things that actually come about by just giving a lunch, showing them that people actually care and are compassionate and empathetic towards them as people. So many of these kids are the ones that get left behind by the time to go to high school, Mm -hmm. They're already what society would kind of label them as fringe youth, and they're likely to be the troublesome ones out there in the community and in the school environment as well. So seeing seeing that we can actually make great change is definitely the highlight. Mm. Um, they're also pretty pretty great in sending us letters and paintings and, and inviting us to things, which is really sweet and just kind of shows that we're appreciated, which is cool. Mm. So you get a chance to go out and meet these kids as well. Yeah, and we sometimes do things like little face painting days or um, we'll dress up as superheroes to go and drop the lunches off and things like that. Yeah, that's great. And what age range are the kids? Uh, They're from uh, five through to 12. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. And just thinking about the business model, because I know you're a social enterprise and the people that are involved in that, can you just describe some of the people who've come on board and maybe how the business is helping them as well? So we formed a partnership with Odyssey House, which would be our, our main partnership. They're a living drug and alcohol rehab center. Mm. Uh, for us, that's now become a huge part of our impact as well. So they um, they took us in as an opportunity to help train their men how to cook. Um, for all these guys, they've just come out of prison and they're trying to find their way through their recovery journey. Mm. Um, it's a lot of meth addicts, a lot of meth cooks, um, a lot of alcoholics, a lot of gamblers. Um, and for us, we went in with this partnership and we're like, okay, well, here we are. We're just going to train them to cook. We can get these guys some vocational skills. That's awesome. And then we soon learned after some independent research and everything that being in the house with them um, was a massive boost for mm-hmm. the morale. Having people that were relatable, um, if you look at us, we're covered in tattoos and mm-hmm. don't. Um, and we look fairly alternative, so they, we were easy for them to accept in the house. We're not social workers, and for the most part, that's their only communication is nurses, parole officers, and social workers. Mm. So having people from the outside world that they can kind of chat to in a, in a friendly and constructive way was really awesome. 
Um, and we've been lucky enough to take one of their guys through and he's about to graduate and we've now hired him. Mm. So that's um, really awesome for us, I think, just finding ways to empower people mm. like that is really massive. Because mm. it goes beyond, uh, I mean, what you described with the kids getting lunch so they can learn and hopefully break the different cycles that they've been bound into, that's wonderful. But then to be able to add on to it, actually helping people learn new skills of cooking and, and maybe break the cycles that they're in as well as young adults or adults. Like yeah. it, it must just be the extra layer of, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of them have kids that are in the situation that we're trying to fix. So it's a very cyclical thing. Mm. Um, so being able to help them help their situation and kind of, because no solution is ever the right one, right? It's not the only solution. It's about finding different ways to approach the problem. Mm. We've got plans for other ways. Um, we need a lot of funding and stuff for that. Mm. But what we can do at the moment is approach the guys in the rehab um, facility and we can approach the schools and we can just try and do that two-pronged effect until we can add additional arms on that will kind mm. of help solve the problem a bit better. Yeah, that makes sense. So those are some of the highlights I picked up too, you know, helping the kids, but then helping the people, you know, coming from difficult situations to learn new skills. Um, just thinking in terms of challenges or things that you're facing. I mean, you mentioned funding. That must be one. Um, are there other things that you can unpack for us? Yeah, definitely. Um, this has been the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's the most rewarding thing I've ever had to do, but it's also the hardest. Um, I think if I was a character in a video game and you've got statistics, I think if resiliency was one, it'd be like maxed out um, <laughs> because it is the hardest thing and having the purpose to to achieve is what gets you up every day, even when it's really hard. So mm. I think a lot of challenges we've faced are um, as I mentioned before, funding. We have had one funding grant of $1,000. Other than that, we mostly rely on just being uh, self-sufficient with our social enterprise model. Just by selling the lunches, um, pays our staff and mm. pays for all of our bills. Mm. We're still pretty much in our infancy, so we have a lot of space for growing and scalability. Mm. Um, another, another challenge would definitely be, to be perfectly honest, would be myself. So coming into this, my background was death metal and making bacon and eggs. <laughs> I'm not incredibly skilled in the art of business. And so it's been a massive learning curve for me. I like to throw myself in the deep end though. So learning all about scales and marketing, mm -hmm. uh, sales and marketing, sorry, um, funding and fundraising, um, designing, like I'm pretty handy with a lot of graphic design work now. Um, finding ways to, to reach new business, finding sensible ways to, to scale, um, finding uh, capital to do the things we need to do. All these things that essentially, like in, in any normal business, you probably have a team of people doing, but for the most part, it's just been myself. And I'm not the best guy for a lot of those jobs. And I know that, I know my strengths, I'm good at problem solving and I'm good at ideation. Mm. Um, and I'm good at working really hard but those things don't typically transfer over to that stuff. So I think that's really held us back in a, in a bit, but we're looking at finding ways to be able to afford that growth where we can bring people on that really have that stuff nailed down. Mm. Um, the stuff that I'm not good at, because it's good to know what your strengths are, but also what your weaknesses are. Mm. And if we can capitalize on that, then I think that it definitely help us out a lot. Mm. That makes sense. And you described before, you know, having a year to learn a subject, it sounds like, business skills and things is 
informally it's been one of the things that you've had to learn isn't it yeah without even acknowledging it yeah, yeah. It, just an extra one <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a whirlwind yeah um, but it's funny how much you learn mm-hmm. in a short amount of time i think i'd only been operating fill their lunchbox for about six months before i got my first gig mentoring students at lincoln university mm. and i was like me you want me to mentor i have no idea what i'm doing right and and i kind of went there and i spoke to the class for an hour and then i sat down and another woman came in to talk about impact and she was talking about measuring impact and stuff and i kind of found myself sitting there at the front of the class chipping in every 20 seconds and realized wow i actually know a lot about this stuff yeah. especially when it comes to um, purpose and impact are probably yeah. my two greatest strengths yeah well that segues nicely into the that because that was what I wanted to ask you about next was in terms of your involvement with youth and because I know you go out and speak to a lot of people and you're telling them your story and helping them to understand what purpose is. Was it that experience at Lincoln that made you realize, hey, I actually do have something to add value? Yeah, I think at the time I was still a bit gobsmacked. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I should really be a mentor because I'm kind of still learning myself, right? Um, but after that, I mentored a few other groups through um, other university and polytech programs around. Um, I had an intern come in and was able to teach her a few things. And then I kind of fell into a position uh, with inspiring stories. So currently I'm just a part-time contractor mm. and we coach 24 um, young local people there. Mm. Uh, we teach them about social enterprise mainly. Um, but also we do a lot of personal development coaching mm. as well. So mm. helping build their confidence and find their purpose that's already there, mm. but just kind of helping them let it bubble to the surface. Right. And so in in that environment, what are some of the key things that you consistently are saying or themes that people listening might be able to learn from? I think don't doubt yourself. Um, a lot of people sit there and they go, I don't know what my life is meant to be about. I don't I don't have a purpose. I don't know what I'm doing. And I can sit there for an hour and within an hour we can map out things like their hobbies, their skills, their interests, the community they want to be around, the things they're passionate about, any mm. personal goals they have. And once that stuff's all on paper, um, I think that's where my strength of problem solving comes in handy. I can kind of piece it all together and be like, oh, well, it kind of looks like this is what you're into right this is the stuff that you're passionate about this is what you want to make a change in you can use this hobby and this skill around this community which will involve this lifestyle and then your passion and then there's your purpose Mm. and so So it's helping people connect the dots that maybe they were spread out on a page like everybody's got it yeah like they all know deep down but they might be afraid Mm. or they just haven't really had anyone go hey i believe in you like check it out you've actually got your stuff together yeah and just yeah just piecing it together yeah so i think for people listening that are concerned about that i think it's just taking the time and maybe finding someone who can just help you like coax you through it everyone's capable everyone has the skills it's not because we're we're not strong enough or we don't believe in ourselves like everything's already there it's mm. just kind of making you aware of it mm. Mm. that's good so that must keep you quite busy because <laughs> yeah. you're, uh, <laughs> we were talking before we started recording, you know, you were out there making the lunches this morning, I think, and, you know, we're doing this uh, podcast and I'm sure you've got other things on. How do you, um, how do you keep your energy levels up or what is it that keeps you, you know, if we're talking about a marathon rather than mm-hmm. a sprint, having that long-term vision, 
um, what is it that, that you find is helpful for you to keep going? I think I'm one of those anomaly of a humans. Like I don't, I, I work with a lot of people in this industry that get very burnt out and they're very aware of that and their mental stability and their, and their well-being. And they will strictly work 35 hours a week and won't do anything extra. Mm. I thrive on being busy. It, it beats me up sometimes because I've got thousands of emails to get to and and I struggle with getting a lot of things done. But I love having a full to-do list, mm. like going in the start of the day and I've got 30 things I need to do. Mm. If I can do 12 of those and then the next day I'll add another six or whatever and then just keep chipping away at it. Mm. I literally thrive on being run off my feet. Right. Um, so, the, like, so the so the source of energy is actually the busyness. Yeah. yeah. I, if I don't keep myself busy, I will be lazy, and I'll get depressed and sad at myself and be like, "Oh, you didn't achieve anything." Mm. Um, I have to get stuff done, mm. and so keeping busy kind of helps facilitate that. Mm. Like I am crazy busy, mm. but I, I like that. Yeah. Well, the thing that I love about your story and hearing your background in more detail, because I didn't know all the all the circumstances, but it seems to me like you've been able to take your past and look at what the what the positives were that you could learn from it. And now you're actually looking, how can I feed into other people? How can I inspire the next generation to take their ideas and run with it and try something new? So um, it's really encouraging for me to, to hear that story. Thanks. I think it's all about, um, well, my personal purpose is helping people help people. Mm. Um, at first, I thought it was uh, to live a fulfilled life by helping disadvantaged children. And then I realized that was so narrow and not actually what I'm about. Um, helping people help people is just a way to say to people, if you're upset about something, there is a way that you can go about helping others mm. um, with fill their lunchbox. It's as easy as volunteering, buying a lunch, donating, um, helping share our stuff on Facebook, being involved and helping marketing by word of mouth, all these tiny little things actually really benefit us, which helps benefit the kids, mm. which helps benefit the guys in the rehab program, mm. all these things. Yeah. Um, and then with the, the crews that we teach and coach, it's the same there. We're just giving them the skills to go out and help other people. Yeah. So it just kind of broadens the net of impact Yeah. because uh, collectively we achieve so much more than rather than just working on your own. Mm. And it's being willing to be vulnerable and open and share with people so that they can learn from your journey as well, isn't it? So that, yeah, you know, collectively we can move forward. And just thinking of the future, like in five years or 10 years or pick a number, but where do you um, hope that Fill the Lunchbox is um, in the future? Like what, what, what are your aims or ambitions for it? Um, my aims, to be honest, is that it doesn't have to exist anymore that mm. child poverty is dealt with in this country and eradicated, whether that be my, by government measures or by grassroots um, groups such as ourselves and other groups out there. Ideally, we won't have to do it anymore, mm. um, which is awesome. People say, well, why would you want to not have a job? Yeah. For, for starters, it's about more than me, and it's about more than my team. And I've developed a whole new set of skills which I can apply into all these new avenues. So... Obviously, I'm coaching at the moment already. Um, I'm also establishing a, a plan to teach purpose workshops and help corporates find their social impact models mm -hmm. um, as business turns to a more social and um, well-being focused arena. Mm. Um, so I'm developing workshops to kind of do that. Mm. I see in five years, 
if Fieldland Lunchbox is still around, we hope to kind of have like a city center hub where people can come in and volunteer and everything. But I hope to also have a, a group of um, social enterprises kind of off the ground. I think it's the future of business, um, even just businesses becoming more socially aware mm. and then c- trying to help those organizations do that. Mm. That's great. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think traditional businesses are waking up to that as well, that they need to be aware of where they're socially procuring things and what are we feeding our staff. And, you know, we've got a boardroom meeting. Why don't they come and get your food rather mm. than getting it from another source? And I like it, what you've just said ties in well with something that Tim Jones said. So he was on um, episode number two, and he was saying basically a social enterprise should exist for a certain period, but then hopefully it's actually solved the problem. <laughs> and the people who learn so much from it, they can then move on to the next issue. Yeah. And rather than just perpetuating, because sometimes, not that this always happens, but you look at a charity that's been around for 100 years and you think, well, why are you still here? You know, like the the problem hasn't gone away. Are you really alleviating the underlying root of the issue or are you just trying to put some bandages on? And I, I, I love that idea that you could actually solve a problem and then we move on to the next one and, and it actually makes it better rather than here's another bandage and we'll just get on. Yeah, definitely. And I think in terms of Fill the Lunchbox specifically, um, what we do is kind of a band-aid measure at present. Mm. Ideally, we would like to take container kitchens and put them on site at the schools and be able to work with other organizations that have gardens in the schools and then go, okay, well, here's the food you grew. Mm. Now now here's a way to, to use that and to make it into healthy, cheap and affordable meals for your family. Go home, teach them the skills and try to, because I think education's mm. super important when it comes to poverty not just child poverty, but poverty in general. And so I think maybe that's an avenue we would go down at one stage, Mm. but you've got to be aware of what you're actually achieving Mm. and measuring it. Like so many um, social entrepreneurs and charities fail to do so. And if you don't measure it, then you don't know if you're actually achieving what you want to achieve. Mm. And and you're right. So many charities and stuff are still around and they're not really achieving much mm. and it's like just kind of being aware of that mm. yeah there's that danger isn't there that you start something and then it keeps going for the sake of keeping going and um and then yeah what is it actually achieving it's a it's a good reminder i guess <laughs> yeah i yeah. definitely want to wash my hands so to speak of fill the lunchbox at some point mm. um and in that in terms of that it would be in the short term handing the reins over to to a co-director um, and letting her run it. She's really good at that kind of stuff. So maximizing her strengths mm. and then giving me the opportunity to um, find find another social issue that I care deeply about. And there's mm. been a few that in my spare time I'll kind of throw around ideas and whatnot. So Yeah, well, that's great. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say? Oh, man, I'd just like to get super inspirational and say um, everybody has the will in them to do good in the community, whether it's being a leader or being a follower, both are equally as valid. You need people to, to lead and to be innovative, but you also need people to get behind them. So I would support you to, to find what you care about and what really tugs on your heartstrings, whether it's child poverty or whether it's eradicating the use of plastic bottles. There's so many things that can 
engage you in a social level and just to find what it is that upsets you and find a way to support that. If you're a follower, find the organizations that are out there, volunteer for them, donate to them, buy their goods. And if there isn't, then innovate, be a leader, be a trailblazer, Mm. make something up and just throw yourself at it and wrap it. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you. And if people want to connect with you and with Fill Their Lunchbox, what's the best way? Is it through website, Facebook? Um, probably through our website and email. Um, so info at fillthelunchbox.co.nz. And if you wanted to get at me directly, just put my name in the subject line and I'll be able to pick that up. Mm, that's great. And maybe for some of the listeners, if th- they may be actually wanting to buy some of the lunches. So the best way would be through the email. Is that how they order or do Um, they go online to do that? Yeah, so through the website. So you order your lunch uh, for the following week, you choose your day. And we've now got a subscription model up so you can just kind of do it once and then get your lunch once a week or once a month. So the website's www.fillthelunchbox.co.nz. If you've got any like big catering orders for corporates and everything, then we just kind of do that by email. Mm. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming and, um, you know, chatting about your life. I just feel like I've learned so much about you and your your story and your journey and then how you've been able to work that in to have a purpose and I love that you're now reaching out to the next generation and and giving them advice and helping them so thanks for joining me today thanks for having me well I certainly found Ben's story to be a fascinating one and having watched him over the last few months I can see that he's on a journey that is really helping people so keep up the great work Ben Now, for those of you who are based in Christchurch, and I'd encourage you to go to the website for Fill Their Lunchbox and see if there's any ways that you might be able to get on board and support Ben and the initiative there. In particular, I'm sure that some of you have some decision-making powers within your organizations, so maybe for your next corporate retreat day or your next board meeting, why not consider ordering these lunches that Ben prepares, and in doing that, help out Fill Their Lunchbox. Check out their website for more information. Now, next week, we're going to go a completely different direction, and we're going to be chatting with Jonathan Lee, who's a photographer who's traveled many parts of the world and lived in many parts of the world as well, taking photographs of nature and people and using photos and videos to tell their stories. I had an amazing conversation with him, and we covered a wide variety of topics, but in particular focused on photography as an art form. Here's an excerpt from the conversation with Jonathan. It's easy to hold down a shutter and just take a bunch of snaps. But when you're really framing, anticipating, waiting for a shot, the way you position yourself, what you capture, who you capture, the time of the day, maybe even what lens you use, the expression that you're about to to capture Mm. is all really a distillation, I think, of your heart and your mind. Because something that I find beautiful, something that I find worth remembering, is encapsulated in the photo. Mm. That's the closest thing we have to time travel, I Mm. feel. Mm. Moments of the class, glimpses from the past, and whether it's a black and white photo or or color or even a film, Mm. it... uh, it, it could say so much. It could offer so much. Well, I hope you can join me for that next episode. Until next time.